was. It's uh, neither the title nor the author are stated. Some think that Psalm 10 is actually a continuation of Psalm 9. But, uh, and if that's true, that would make it a Psalm of David, since Psalm 9 was written by David. But uh, that's uncertain, and some would argue the differences are too distinct uh, to think that's the case. Uh, we really don't know. Uh, it is interesting, the writer uses an acrostic uh, based on the second half of the Hebrew alphabet in writing this psalm. Sometimes they did that to help in, in memorizing a particular psalm. Uh, psalm 9 addresses an enemy from outside the nation, while Psalm 10 addresses abuses from within. Psalm 10 is another what we call a lament psalm. The psalms of lament are poems or hymns expressing human struggles related to affliction, uh, related to oppression and evil. Psalm 10 is a psalm of lament regarding the seeming prosperity of people who are wicked and abusive of God's people. But then at the end of the psalm, the writer expresses great confidence that God will in due time judge and turn the situation around. So note uh, on the overhead there, we have a, kind of an outline here, a plea for justice. It begins with why. Why does God hide in times of trouble? And then verses 2 through 11, description of the wicked. Uh, 12 and 13, a call for judgment. 14 and 15, confident that God will judge. And finally, uh, 16 through 18, praise to God for vindication. Well, let's begin. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? That's a great question. I mean, when you really need him, where is he? That's what he's saying. God, where are you? I mean, this is times of trouble. We really need you right now. Where are you? Here is the age-old proverbial question that is so common to people when they're hurting, when they're going through a hard time. It's very common for people to say, why? Now, I'm sure all of us here tonight are way too spiritual to ever ask a question like this. Not. We sometimes wonder why. What's the purpose in all of this? Uh, where is God at a time like this? He seems so distant. Twice in verse 1, the why question is raised here. Why doesn't God do something about this situation? Often God seems to be distant and uninvolved. And therefore, hidden in that sense. When you have feelings like this, I want you to know you're not the first person to feel this way. It's a common experience. Sometimes we feel very close to God, but sometimes we can feel very far from God. And I know we read about Fox's Book of Martyrs and the great heroes of the faith. And, but there's been a lot of other situations where people did not, in their time of persecution, it just like, where is God? That was their experience. That was their feeling. At times we sense the closeness of God, but other times it feels like he's distant. And that's really hard when you're going through a really difficult time. Spurgeon said, it's not the trouble, but the hiding of the Father's face which cuts us to the quick. Yeah, I think that's true. Now it's easy uh, to walk by faith in the light, so to speak, but when the darkness settles in, that's where the challenge lies. Verse 2, here is the problem. Here's what he's wrestling with. 
The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. And he says, let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Pride is the besetting sin of mankind. And it's especially notable and obvious in the lives of the wicked. Pride defies God. And it shows really in the mistreatment of other people. And especially the vulnerable. Note, the wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Pride takes advantage of people, especially the vulnerable, the the poor. The writer says of such people, let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. How's that for a prayer? It's not a bad prayer. Will of the Lord be done. I mean, vengeance belongs to him. Give it over to God. He's specifically kind of asking for a specific thing. He is calling for what we might call poetic justice, uh, where they are, what they are sinfully plotting comes back on their own heads. Lord, cause their evil plotting to backfire on them. That's really what he's praying. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, There are none who will dispute the justice of God when he shall hang every uh, Haman on his own gallows and cast all the enemies of his Daniels into their own den of lions. I mean, God can do this, where he turns it around, and the very thing they're plotting now happens to them. That's his request here. And you say, well, that seems really kind of severe. But when you look at the, what, how wicked these people are and what they're doing, you can kind of understand why he might ask this. Verse 3, for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. Very bold in their sin. Depravity is astounding in its bold audacity. The wicked here are full of themselves, boast of his heart's desires. They boast about what they're going to do, and they bless the greedy. They're all in with the greedy. It's all about us. And then on top of it all, it says, renounces the Lord. I think that's the worst part here. First part of the verse is bad, Boasts in his heart's desire, blesses the greedy, but boy, renounces the Lord. That's really unthinkably bad. Uh, These people in their arrogance are so bold as to despise the Lord himself. To renounce the Lord is to openly spurn and abandon him. It's to cast him off as if he has no role or say in your life. And amazingly, God puts up with this for quite a while. Why? God, bring the hammer down on them already. It's really kind of what he's saying. Let them be caught in their plots which they have devised. But you know, God is a very patient God. I always think about that true story about Robert Ingersoll, who was a very famous atheist back in the day. And one time he was just in a blasphemous way, saying all kinds of blasphemous things about God. And he once took out his watch after he had been blaspheming for a while. And he said, quote, I will give God five minutes to strike me dead for the things which I have said. Well, when the five minutes were up, and and I mean, it was so dramatic, a woman passed out and everything else. I mean, there was high tension in the the room. But uh, when the five minutes had passed, uh, Ingersoll put his watch back in his pocket, claiming that he had proven that God doesn't exist. Well, when that incident reached the ears of a certain preacher named Joseph Parker, he responded by asking this question. And did the gentleman think that he could exhaust the patience of the eternal God in five minutes? Well, that's a pretty good response. 
God is an amazing, patient God. Uh, you know, it's kind of like Luther said, if I were God, I would have smashed the world into pieces long ago. Uh, but thankfully, none of us are God, right? He's a very patient God. Verse 4, the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. The wicked have a proud countenance. Shows on their face. Yeah, pride is a matter of the heart, but it shows in the face. Here is the crux of pride. It's an attitude of independence from God. Pride thinks it does not need God and therefore does not seek or rely upon God. Doesn't humble itself before God thinking is self-sufficient, and just kind of leaves God out of the equation. God is in none of his thoughts. Pride rejects God's lordship authority. It's in none of, uh, God's in none of this person's thoughts. They have completely dismissed God from their thinking, or at least try to. Now, not thinking about God is indicative of pride, and it is a great sin. The wicked have a pride problem. Note, note this threefold emphasis in what we have studied here. It's not moving for me. Can you move the next slide for me, guys? For some reason. There we go. Uh, the wicked have a pride problem. Verse 2, the wicked in pride persecutes. Verse 3, for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. Verse 4, the wicked in his proud countenance. So pride, pride, pride. A dominant emphasis here in these three verses. And here's why he carries on so proudfully as he does. It seems for a time anyway that he totally gets away with it. Seems to be working pretty good for him. He's just walking over people. Verse 5, his ways are always prospering. I mean, things are going well for this guy. But he's missing something. Your judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. Well, he's got an attitude going. In his wickedness, this person seems to always be prospering. He really gets ahead doing this kind of stuff and taking advantage of people, as we will see. The judgments, however, of God that are coming are far above his head, out of his sight. Therefore, he doesn't see them coming. He doesn't see what's coming. You know, pride is a blinding thing. We're all caught up in self. They lose sight of the reality that's in God. And therefore, he carries on as he does. He has no regard for his enemies. He sneers at them as one who is superior. I mean, this person really thinks they're invincible, self-made and very cocky, very sure. Again, pride is a very blinding and deceiving thing in which one thinks he's higher than he really is. Verse 6, he has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. I mean, oh, the depravity. In his heart, he's thinking these things. I shall not be moved. I'm not going anywhere. Nobody's going to take me out. I shall never be in adversity. That's an amazing, cocky attitude. Very proud. You know, the only place this person can go is down. But they don't think so. They think in their high place, they won't be moved. Trouble is not going to bring them down. I shall never be in adversity. Nope, not going down. This person is extremely cocky. They trust in themselves. And it's a strong trust. 
And again, the reason they get away with it for a time is because God allows it. He's very long-suffering. But because God is patient, uh, they come to have a false sense of security, thinking they will get away with it forever. And there they're dead wrong. You know, there's an interesting verse in Ecclesiastes. I don't know if you uh, are you familiar with this verse, but it says, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is set in them to do evil. How true this is. The Bible constantly rings true to life. We see it in our society when the criminals are not dealt with in, in a timely and proper manner. What happens? Things just get worse. And so, you know, people try to and they kind of take advantage of the grace of God. And they misunderstand it. They misread it. The wicked are completely thinking, oh, I'm getting away with this. Verse 7, his mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. Verse 6 emphasizes a heart problem. Verse 7 emphasizes a mouth problem. they got a heart and mouth problem. And they go together. The mouth of the wicked is full of cursing, deceit, and oppression. Their tongue is all about trouble. Iniquity is wickedness or malice. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth tells on the heart. James Montgomery Boyce said, cursing, lying, threatening, and troubling, and evil speech are all destructive. They flow from one who does not believe that God will hold him or her accountable. I mean, God has no control over their mouth. I mean, he's not Lord over their mouth. They're just saying whatever. By the way, this verse is quoted by Paul in recounting the depravity of man in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 14, where it says, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And these wicked people are sneaky, wicked creeps. Verse 8, he sits in the lurking places of the villages, in the secret places. He murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. There's a vulnerable person. I can take advantage of him. He lies in wait secretly. As a lion in his den, he lies in wait to catch the poor, to pounce on them. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. Note that word secret or secretly, used three times in these verses. These wicked people think nothing of taking advantage of the weak and the helpless who don't even see what's coming. They lurk about secretly looking for an opportunity to ambush, to ambush the helpless in a deadly manner. They murder the innocent. Their victims are innocent, helpless, and poor. It doesn't get much lower than this. Verse 11, again we come back to an analysis of the heart. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. How does this person sleep at night? Well, in their heart, they think that God has forgotten. Since God has allowed them for an extended period of time to get away with it, they interpret this as God has overlooked and moved on. 
This really reflects a very low view of God. They are clueless and delusional in their wickedness. But this, I think, is how they cope. They convince themselves in their heart that God will not hold them accountable. Well, you can give yourself this kind of false self-talk, but it doesn't change reality, as we will go on to see in the psalm here. However, I want you to note something. In verse 4, it says that God is in none of his thoughts. Verse 11 says that in his heart, he says, God has forgotten. Try as hard as he may, he can't quite keep God completely out of all of his thoughts. The wicked do suppress the truth of God, but they're never quite totally successful. I mean, this haunting idea of God, it just kind of lurks in the background somewhere. The long arm of the conscience, as I call it, still gets in there, and they have to try and deal with it somehow. And one way they do this within their heart is to say, well, God has forgotten, and we have gotten away with it. It doesn't matter. Nothing happened. And they think of this because for a long time, it seems, in fact, they have gotten away with it. But that is deceitful. And again, we bring in Romans chapter 3, verse 18, where it says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. They have no reverence for God. They don't have a high view of God. Psalm 1011 is what having no fear of God really looks like. They are not concerned about God's judgment. They think they can sin with immunity. This is a terrible, terrible place to be. And yet the depravity of mankind takes them there. And so the psalmist all of a sudden blurts out, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand and do not forget the humble. Cries out to God once again to do something about this. And the language here recalls uh, Numbers 10, verse 35. We read there, uh, Numbers 10, 35. So it was, whenever the ark set out, that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. This really amounted to a battle cry in which Moses called on God to rise up and go before them and defeat the enemy. This, in effect, is what the writer at this point is doing. He is calling on God to intervene, to show up, to make his hand and his power known, to intervene and defeat the enemy. So verse 12 is a call for God to arise in judgment, at the same time a plea for him to not forget the humble. Verse 13, why do the wicked renounce God? Here's why. He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. Wow. Again, what a low view of God. God's not going to hold me accountable. I don't think I can just do this. I mean, how crazy is that? For any Bible believer, that is crazy talk. It's crazy thoughts. He has said in his heart. Again, for being one who does not have God's in his thoughts, he has a lot of thoughts about God in his heart. Verse 12, he says, God has forgotten. Verse 13, he says, God will not require an account. The idea then is although he does not have God in his thoughts, he suppresses that, uh, yet at the same time, uh, he is wrestling with this in the background, although he dismisses God as irrelevant and says, I'm not going to come into judgment. Thus the wicked try their hardest to convince themselves that they will not be held accountable 
for their wicked doings. And in their pride, they do in self-deception, convince themselves of this, and therefore they renounce God as insignificant. They convince themselves that God does not really matter, and this shows in their life. But they're overlooking one thing. Uh, you know this verse, right? At least part of this verse, probably. Numbers 32, 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. It, and it, it will eventually. Uh, the wicked in their pride convince themselves that God will not hold them accountable, that he doesn't even see it. In the words of verse 11, he will never see, and therefore he will not require account, verse 13. But ah, here is the all-important reality that they're overlooking, verse 14. But you have seen, the psalmist says, but you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief, to repay it by your hand. Payday someday. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helpless of the fatherless. In truth, God sees. He has seen it all, and he's been taking notes. You know, he's got a book on every person's life. Then the books are going to be opened at the great white throne judgment. He knows. He observes the trouble and the grief the wicked have afflicted upon his people. He knows, and that's comforting. He has not forgotten it has not been overlooked, even though it might seem that way for a time. In due time, God will repay. Uh, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. As the old preacher said, payday someday. The wages of sin is death, and payday is coming. It's not a matter of if, but a matter of when. The only exception is if the wicked come to repentance, which we pray that they do. The helpless have no strength, and so they commit themselves to God. They have no strength within themselves, and so they look to God to help them, to intervene. And the writer reminds himself that indeed God is the helper of the fatherless. Well, he is there for those who are vulnerable, who are helpless. That is, those who commit themselves to him, as it says here, trusting in God to help them. And with this thought, the writer breaks forth with what we might call an imprecatory prayer. Verse 15, break the arm of the wicked. Didn't say the neck. <laughs> break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. Break the arm is a way of calling on God to destroy their strength. The arm is a picture of, of strength. Seek out his wickedness until you find none as a way of calling on God to deal with his wicked ways until he's reduced to nothing. And with confidence that God will judge, the writer then says, verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Yahweh is king forever and ever. Eternally, he sits on his throne as sovereign over all. No matter what circumstances may look like at the moment, it's good to remember that God is still on the throne and that he has everything under his control. Uh, what, a, what a comforting reality. The Lord is king forever and ever. I mean, that is never going to change. The psalm began with a sense of despair regarding these times of trouble, but he ends with great confidence that the Lord, that is Yahweh is king, Forever. 
God rules. No matter what the situation might look like outwardly, God is still king. He's still on the throne. After the Israelites were delivered from Egypt, uh, at the destruction of Pharaoh's army, they sang this song. It's a great song. I love the, these kind of songs. Exodus 15, 18, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. Wow, indeed he will. The writer then recalls that the nations have perished out of his land, which is to say the promised land of Israel. God in the past had given great victories over the cruel enemies of God's people, namely the Canaanites who occupied the land of promise. And recalling this reality, I think, bolstered the confidence of the psalmist concerning the present situation. And so he says, verse 17, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear. In faith, the psalmist says the Lord has heard the desire of the humble. Note it doesn't say he heard their prayer, but their desire. Charles Spurgeon said, sometimes we have desires we cannot express. They are too big, too deep. We cannot clothe them in language. But God knows our hearts. He knows, in effect, what is the prayer of our hearts, which is, I think, the spirit of what we have here. Uh, you know, sometimes we don't know how to pray. Romans 8, 26, the spirit also helps our, in our weaknesses. We do not know for what we should pray as we ought, but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. There is... A, the Spirit's ministry. I think it relates to, uh, you know, we're engaged there. Our hearts are there, uh, the desires of our hearts, and, and we want what God wants, and we don't know quite how to pray, and, and the Spirit's helping us in that context. The Lord hears even the quiet prayers of the oppressed, and he strengthens their heart for whatever he calls them to endure and go through. And in the end, he answers prayer in a way that vindicates his people. Verse 18, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. That the man of the earth, which is a description of the wicked, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. One day God is going to right all the wrongs. The helpless and the oppressed will no longer be taken advantage of. The man of the earth, meaning the man who lives for this life, who physically is mere dust, by the way, ten times in the book of Revelation, the rebel unbelievers are technically referred to as earth dwellers. The man of the earth. The proud strut their stuff on earth today, taking advantage of, oppressing people, especially God's people. But that is not the end of the story. God has not forgotten. He hears the prayer of the humble. He sees, and one day he will act. But I want to take you back as I wrap up this message. I want to take you back to verse 1. And I want to take you back to the word, why? Why does God at times not intervene? Standing afar off. Wouldn't it be neat if somebody was picking on you and you called on God? Whoop! <laughs> you know those two witnesses in the book of Revelation are going to have a ministry like that. Anybody speaks to kids and fire comes out of their mouth? They call down fire. I mean, you got a, a fire-breathing ministry. I, I, I can't, you know, John MacArthur says, if, if it's available, I'm, I'm willing. <laughs> but that's not normal. 
Normally, that, that doesn't happen. Often, it's like uh, we don't, why? Why doesn't God come? These people are godly people, sincere people, humble people. They're, they're just doing God's work. And here they are, being hammered. Why? Why does he hide in times of trouble? I want you to know the why question is not really answered in the psalm. Did you pick up on that? Yes, we know someday God's going to turn it around. But why does he just stand by sometimes and let this go on for what seems like forever? You know, sometimes we just don't know the why. You know, Job wanted to know why. I mean, you got a long book, 42 chapters. Most of it is Job trying to ask, I just want to know why, why, why. And, of course, his three friends showed up and said, we tell you why. <laughs> Didn't satisfy Job in the slightest. It's interesting, though. As, as intense as Job was, he wanted to know why. When God showed up and revealed himself to Job, you know what he did? He never really told Job why. You would have thought Job would have said, God, I'm so glad I finally got an audience with you. I wanted to know why. Job didn't do that. Put my hand over my mouth. Now, God didn't tell Job why. He simply gave Job a greater vision of himself than he'd ever seen before, and that sufficed. Caused him to humble down and just worship God for who he is. And this is also where Psalm 10 goes. The psalmist came back to the reality of God and that in his timing, he will deal with the wicked and he will vindicate his people. And that's where we can rest. We can leave it with God. When we are faced with the why questions, we must come back to faith and the promises of God. You know, we got some wonderful promises. That's where we go to when we can't figure it out. You know, we go to promises like Romans 8, 28, right? You've memorized that verse, haven't you? If you haven't, you should. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good. For those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, not everything is good, but God is always good. And he is ever working the greater scheme of things all together for good, for those who love him. This becomes a matter of faith. If you're going to try to rationalize this, eh, that doesn't, I don't see that served any good purpose. Matter of faith. If you just look at your circumstances, that will mess with your mind. You have to look at God and his promises. This is really what faith is all about. The other thing I would say is that God is a God of drum roll, please. We will wait, Jeremy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, yeah, Cisco. <laughs> God is a God of grace. And he has a grace plan in which he deals with depraved rebels in a very patient way. And in this way of God's working, he gives space, space for rebels to come to repentance. In fact, you know, the Bible says this is what he's doing, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, 
I mean, he's not slack. He's not a slacker, like, you know, I'm just not showing up because I'm a slacker. No, he's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering, patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's waiting for them to come to repentance. So in our why questions about the wicked and why God doesn't bring the hammer down on them, the answer is he's waiting for more to come to repentance. You know, it's not just about us. It's about what God is doing in relationship to the big picture, many lives, many situations. You know, sometimes you pray for uh, the wicked politicians. But you know, I think about all the people working with, you know, um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a Daniel in his cabinet. What? What's going on here? You think God's going to work through that? Uh, you know, uh, you go to Rome, and uh, in Nero's court, Paul is, call, Paul is witnessing to those people as he's under house arrest. And he said, boy, the gospel's going forth here. Uh, who knows how God's at work behind the scenes in relationship to the lost? So what is the antidote uh, to the troublesome why questions? I think it's trust. It's trusting God. He's still the king. In due time, he will judge. In the meantime, he's still calling people to repentance. And in all of this, we can trust him. His timing, his purpose, his inscrutable will. In the end, God's people are going to rule with Christ. We are going to the kingdom. We're on our way to the kingdom. And we're going to rule with Christ. We're going to reign with Christ. Indeed, then, all will know that the Lord is king forever and ever. And we will all marvel, I think, at his eternal plan in which he indeed sovereignly worked all things together for the eternal good of his people and for his own eternal glory. And he often did it in ways that are past finding out in this life. Uh, Ecclesiastes, I haven't taught through that for quite a while. It's the most philosophical book in the Bible. I find it profound in many ways. But in this book of Ecclesiastes, we have the writer, which we believe to be Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is trying to figure out the ways of God under the sun. And as he does so, he finds it impossible to really quite figure it out. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. You know what that? It's working all things together for good. In its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. You know, there's something about this life that never satisfies us. We were made for eternity. And then he says this. Okay, we were made for eternity. We know there's a bigger plan out here. But he says he has put eternity in their hearts, except, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. You can't figure it out. And then he says, verse 14, in, that, in Ecclesiastes 3, 14, I know that what God does forever, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. And God does it that men should fear before him. God is sovereign. He's got a sovereign plan, and it's working out the way he wants it to go. Charles Spurgeon said, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. In the end, there are many why questions in life. 
And I think what God wants us to do is trust him. When we can't trace his hand, God help us to trust him. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.